Amen. Let's pray. Father, that is our desire today is to come before you and to behold you upon your throne, high, lifted up, transcendent, seated above all things in your position of power and glory and being given your precious word, Lord, we are thankful that we have it and it's our it's our prayer this morning that we would understand it, Lord, not just to understand it into of it. God, we pray that you would help us in this way. There are, I know there are so many distractions, distractions from the past week, distractions from the coming week, distractions from this present day. Um, but Lord, you have given us this time together to worship corporately. So unify our hearts together as one, Lord, as we've been, as we've been singing with one voice unto you, help us, Lord, to listen and hear your word with one heart, one mind, to be able to have that understanding together and that we might then um, grow together and encourage one another as well as you, have, as you have called us to do. So we thank you, Father, for this time. I pray that this time now is an extension, it's a continuation of our worship as we look to you, Lord. We love you and we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are um, going to continue our series today on the church. And I had originally planned for us to talk about the sacraments. Um, kind of if, I'm, if I'm cutting in and out here or there, just bear with. The, the sound system doesn't like the cold, so getting a little bit to to warm up. But um, we are going to be talking this morning about what we would call the sacraments. And I was originally going to cover baptism and the Lord's Supper, communion today. And, but as usual, I get into my studying and I go, these each deserve their own sermon. So we are going to just be covering baptism this morning. And it's my hope and my prayer that as we get into it, we would have a, a, a richer and deeper understanding of the significance of baptism. Um, with both of these things, I think for a lot of people, there is the perspective of, well, we do communion every week, and we do baptism because we see it modeled for us in the New Testament. And that's true, we do. And, and I know many people are happy with looking at it and seeing those things in that way of saying, well, Jesus did it, he commands us to do it, so I'm going to do it. Um, and that's to a degree and level fine. But my hope and prayer for us this morning is that we would be able to plumb the depths a little bit more regarding baptism and its significance, really to see it in its, its covenantal structure and nature, because I believe that when we understand these things in a deeper way, that it enables us, it brings us and it draws the heart to a position of worship. And that, to me, if that's what the end goal is, if understanding baptism in a, richer, in a richer and deeper way biblically engages our hearts and leads us to the throne to behold God's glory and to worship him more fully, then I'm all in. Then I think that it would, it's time well spent and it's something that we should pursue. And so that's my prayer. It's not just to biblically understand some of the background behind this act of baptism. And it's not just to fill our minds with more theological and biblical information. The idea is always, always to engage and to grip the heart so that we might 
more freely and fully worship God. Everything that we do as a church needs to be unto that end because God is worthy to be worshipped. And I don't know about you, but I find myself happier. I find myself more content, having more peace when my life is more engaged upon worshiping him and rather than worrying about myself and what's going on around me. The, the more often my heart is drawn to his glory and his holiness and his goodness and I'm lost in amazement and wonder of God and who he is, then my joy, my contentment, my peace, my happiness, all those things, right, that we're all, we all want, we're all pursuing, they actually, they actually grow in my life. And I believe that that's true for you guys as well. So, um, so it's my hope this morning that by looking and plumbing some of the depths of baptism in particular, that that's what's going to happen today. And when we talk about sacraments, I know for some people, because of your background with the Catholic Church, your mind automatically goes towards um, the Catholic meaning and understanding of the sacraments. And so again, it's my hope that we kind of break away from some of that as well. The sacraments are, just give a kind of a, a brief definition here. The sacraments, when we partake of baptism, when we partake of communion, they are physical signs of all the benefits sealed and applied to the believer in the covenant of grace by God, and it's the believer's allegiance back to God. So essentially, these things are physical signs and reminders of all the promises of God to me as one who is in relationship with him. I'm, I'm partaking of these things. I'm baptized, and I take communion not to earn or to merit God's favor, not to get him to love me, not to get him to bring me into the covenant. I do these things as a response of being brought into covenant relationship with him. Communion and baptism are the joyful responses of someone who is brought into covenant union and relationship with God through Christ. And I partake of these things, and they're physical reminders of the blessing of the grace being brought into union with him, but they're also a reminder of my call to respond and to live rightly because I live in a covenant relationship with him. God does not just bring the sinner. He doesn't just save us by grace and bring us into his family and bestow all these wonderful blessings and promises upon us and then say, go live how you want. Go do whatever you want to do. You're my child and I love you no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter how you live. Within a covenant relationship with God, it is true that he bestows upon us grace upon grace. Mercy, unparalleled kindness, goodness, and love that cannot be matched by anything or anyone else on this planet. But it is also by my understanding of that mercy and of my understanding of that grace given to me that it is a call for me to respond rightly to him and to live in a way that glorifies him. I mean, just think about what you know about the New Testament. Well, how is it that Paul was, was, could say for me to live as Christ and to die as gain? How can people that we read about in the scriptures be absolutely committed to a life of being poured out for the gospel, for the glory of God, without any regard for their own well-being, financial uh, safety, personal safety, physical safety? How can they live with complete abandon 
for the, for the glory of God and for the preaching of the gospel, but because they were assured of the promises that were theirs in Christ, and nothing could take that away from them. And so they could live a life worthy to him. And it's my hope that by understanding the goodness and the grace given to us by God, that we would then freely and joyfully partake of baptism and the Lord's Supper together um, as he calls us to. Baptism and communion are important because they are outward markers of inward realities. They are saying something about the state of my soul. They're saying something that I, that, that there's something that Christ has done within me. And so therefore I respond this way to him. They are reminders of that I am, I'm, I'm cognizant, I'm mindful of the fact that there has been a judgment, a recreation, and a salvation that has taken place for me and in my life. And therefore, I want to live rightly for him. And so there's two things, really, that I want for us to understand um, regarding baptism and communion. And there, number one, is that when the scriptures speak about them, you'll notice that there's a very strong emphasis upon the work of the Holy Spirit regarding baptism and communion. You'll find the working of the Spirit of God present almost always when you're talking about baptism and you're talking about communion. Essentially, we do these things because we have been sealed by the Spirit, regenerated by the Spirit, bought by the Spirit. We are, we are gods by the work of the Spirit in our lives. Secondly, it's that not only are they these things done by the Spirit, but that they take place within a covenantal structure. And, um, and I think it's good and helpful for us to understand that covenantal nature and structure of our relationship with God in order for us to plumb some of the depths of the baptism and communion. So as we talk about baptism today, I want to talk about the Spirit's work of judgment, recreation, and salvation in baptism. The Spirit's work of judgment, recreation, and salvation in the work of baptism. And so if you would uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, this is kind of where we're going to start today. I just want to do a brief overview and talk about what we see in the New Testament regarding the practice of baptism. The practice of baptism. Um, really, this is in John, excuse me, in Mark chapter 1, we see John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People were coming out to him, confessing their sins. And he has said that he, in verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he who is coming after me, talking about Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus comes and he's baptized as well. And then from there, Jesus would continue to practice baptism. And so the practice of baptism is one that is common from our perspective in reading in the New Testament. And we see it with a very specific um, um, 
point and purpose in it. it baptism was not always held like that. Um, baptism was something that was being practiced in Judaism when John the Baptist comes upon the scene, but his baptism is entirely different than what it was that the people of Israel would have been exposed to and what their understanding of baptism was. Some of the, the outward workings of it were very similar, but the, the emphasis of what baptism was was really different based upon John the Baptist's baptism and contrasting that with the baptism that would, would have been happening in Israel and Judah. I think um, Louis Burkhoff says it well in his systematic theology, and he contrasts these things. He says, it seems, however, that this baptism, the one he's talking about, the one that was being practiced commonly in Israel, was also merely a sort of ceremonial washing, somewhat in line with other purifications. It is quite evident that the baptism of John was pregnant with new and more spiritual meaning. John's baptism aimed at transferring those who submitted to it into an altogether new sphere, the sphere of the definite preparation of the approaching kingdom of God. But, of all, but above all, the difference lay in this, that John's baptism could never be regarded as a mere ceremony. The cleansing of the heart from sin was not only its preliminary condition, but its constant aim and purpose. John the Baptist's baptism was never just a mere outward ceremony, but it was always designed to expose the inward reality of a changed heart, one that had confessed the wickedness of its own sin, and one that was then wanted to receive forgiveness for that sin and then set upon a trajectory of living a new life because they had been forgiven of their sin. That was the purpose. And, and baptism in John the Baptist's ministry was just existing and beginning to sprout and grow and bear fruit at a very infant stage in the ministry of John the Baptist. But then you get into it and you see the regular practice of it in the book of Acts. And by the time you get to the book of Acts, outward water baptism is a very common expression of those who are confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It always had the heart transformation emphasis at its root. And the rest of the New Testament aims at this same point regarding baptism. Jesus was baptized. He baptized others. And in Acts, there were baptisms. And all of them, though, the Holy Spirit is emphasized and beginning also with Jesus. You remember in Jesus' baptism, it says that he's the, they see the Holy Spirit descend upon him in the form of a dove. And this is not the moment that Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. Matthew tells us that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So it's not like, it's not like Jesus was born and then didn't have the Holy Spirit, and then all of a sudden when he gets into his, you know, perhaps around 30 years old, he then receives the Holy Spirit. He's always had the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit given to him at the baptism outwardly as a, as a visible manifestation was a sign that he was embarking upon his messianic mission and was really a sign that he could not fail because he was endowed. Anything that he did was a work of the Spirit, the work of God's Spirit in his life. And the working and the presence and the abiding of the Spirit of God upon the Son of God was an assurance and a promise that the plan of God could not fail. He was going to accomplish what he came to accomplish. And not even the gates of hell 
would be able to prevail against him building his church, as we have seen. And we've seen that the Spirit's work is present almost every time there is a baptism mentioned and undergone in the New Testament, and it reminds us of his sealing, and it assures of the salvation and the victory, just as the Holy Spirit present upon the Son of God when he began his messianic mission from his time of baptism forward, assured the victory of his mission, so too the Holy Spirit given and present when those who were baptized assures those who were being baptized of their victory, of their sealing, of being brought into this relationship with God. One that could not, one that would fulfill what Jesus says, no one can snatch these out of my hand. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. And it was an assuring work of the Holy Spirit. And so we see the practice of baptism common and happening in that way. And I think along those lines, that's the reason why many of us have been baptized. I can tell you for sure that I didn't understand all of the, the biblical depth of baptism. When I got baptized, all I knew was that Jesus had done an incredible work within a really bad person's heart, and I was super thankful for it. And now I wanted to publicly show everyone else that I had now was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and loved him and understood his love for me, and I wanted to live the rest of my life for him. And that was about what I understood. Um, but this, I think the scriptures give us a lot more and enriches our understanding of baptism. And it's to that I want to look to now, the covenantal sign of baptism, and I think that this is, is enriching for us. If you would turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, and this is really where we're going to spend most of our time this morning now, the rest of our time together looking at baptism. Baptism as it is a covenantal sign. Baptism is a sign that I have been brought into a positive covenantal union and relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ and by the sealing of the Holy Spirit in my life. You notice it is a triune God act. The Father has saved me through the redemptive work of the Son and the sealing work of the Spirit of God in my life. And it brings me into a covenantal relationship with him. And this is really Paul's emphasis here in Colossians chapter 2. I want to read through Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. And then I want to talk a little bit about what it is that Paul is explaining and, and why he specifically uses this act of circumcision regarding baptism. He says this, In him, the in him, meaning Jesus, in him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You notice that Paul talks about baptism in this passage in a way that he just seems to seamlessly weave it in with this thing called circumcision. And that really makes us think back as to what would Paul have been thinking of when he talked about circumcision? And where in Scripture is circumcision maybe first instituted? And then where do we see it going from there as it leads us to what it is that Paul would be writing here? And so our minds then would hopefully and should go back to where we see circumcision instituted, and that's in God's covenantal relationship and union with Abram in Genesis. If you remember and you think back, I know, I'm trying to get the wheels turning here. I think back to what it was that took place all the way back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram to go to a land that he has for him. And he gives him these promises. And um, God makes these promises to Abram, says to go, and Abram, he goes. He's obedient. He believes in God's call. He believes in God's plan and his promises. In Genesis, by the time we get to Genesis 14, Abram is, has gone from a sojourner that God has called to go to a land that he does not know to really being established as this mighty warrior king. Not perfect by any means. In Genesis 12, he has that big issue in Egypt where he says, tell them you're, tell, he says to his wife Sarah, tell them you're my sister. And then everything like goes bad there. So he's not a perfect man. He doesn't walk perfectly by faith. But by the time you get to Genesis, the end of Genesis 14, he's established. And this is important. He's established as this, as, this, as this mighty warrior king. Genesis 14, um, it gives us a story of where there's four pagan kings that go to war against five pagan kings. They go to war against one another, and the four defeat the five. But in the four defeating the five, they take and they abduct Lot, who's Abram's nephew, and all of his family. And Abram hears of this, and his response is, I've got to go get my nephew. And so he goes with his some 300 men against the four kings of the land, and he defeats them. And he defeats them, and he takes away not only Lot, but all of the plunder along with him. And so, he, so this one man goes against four kings, defeats them, ransoms and rescues his nephew Lot, takes away all the plunder and the goods. And at the end of Genesis 14, he is this warrior king who is who is rich because he has just ransacked and plundered four nations. And then Genesis 15 comes. And it's, it's at the height of really Abram's prosperity that God comes to him and meets him and reminds him of the promise that he made to Abram. And he enters into this covenant relationship with Abram and it's this beautiful picture of even though Abram is as great and as mighty as he is, God is greater. God is mightier. 
It's the greater king bringing into a covenant relationship with him a lesser king. Regardless of how great Abram was, he is always lesser when it comes to his status with God. If you were to compare any man of this world, it doesn't matter who they are and how much money they have. It doesn't matter what their name is. It doesn't matter their stocks and their billions of what it is that they are worth. Every man is always lesser when being contrasted and compared with God. He is always greater. He is the greater king. He is the greatest king. And it's in this prosperity that Abram has that he comes into this Uh, is reminded by God of God's promises to him, and God makes this covenant relationship with him and swears to him that he will fulfill his promises to give him a land and to give him a seed that God is promising to him. And he enters into this covenant relationship with him. And then there's there's this ceremony that takes place where these animals are gathered together, and each of the animals is cut in half, and they're laid apart from one another. So there's half of the animals are in a row this side, and half of the animal is on the row on this side. And what would happen in this covenant ceremony is that the lesser of the two kings would actually walk between the animals and say, if I do not, if I'm not obedient to you, the greater king, then you may sever me in half, just as we have severed these animals in half. The incredible thing that happens in Genesis 15 is not, it's not that it's the lesser king that walks between the two animal halves. It's that the greater king, God himself, as pictured in the theophany of the emblems there, walks in between the two halves. And so God is saying, if I do not fulfill my promise to you, may you cut me in half as I have cut these animals in half which we know is impossible with God. He can't be cut in half. And it's, but it's his way of, of going above and beyond. I mean, he has already spoken to Abraham saying, I will do this for you. And he goes even further in this covenant ceremony to make Abraham absolutely sure beyond a, of a shadow of a doubt that God is going to accomplish what he promises to accomplish for him. And in that there's really two layers that are going on there. God, in one, on one hand, is promising Abraham a, phys- a physical land and seed, which is represented in Canaan and Isaac, but he's also promising him there's another layer that there's going to be a spiritual land and seed that's represented in heaven and in Christ that will come. Genesis 16 comes. Abraham has a son named Ishmael because he grows tired of waiting upon God to fulfill his promise. And Genesis 17 comes, and a covenant sign of circumcision is given. He's all, Abram is already within the, the relationship with God. He's already had an offspring of Ishmael, and he circumcises Ishmael. But it's a reminder to us that you can be physically, there will be those among them that are physically circumcised, but not spiritually circumcised. Abraham will have a physical line, but he will have a spiritual line as well. And circumcision from that point forward is a mark, it's a sign, it's a seal of those who are already in a covenant relationship with God. But the, the, even the Old Testament carries forward the theme of it's not about the outward circumcision. 
the primary concern of God is that his people have an inward circumcision of the heart that, is, that, has been, that they have undergone. Deuteronomy chapter 10 makes this clear when Moses is pleading with the people to have a circumcised heart. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 4.4, that prophet would remind them that they are called to have a circumcised heart. The reason why God is judging the nation of Israel and taking them off into exile is because all they are doing is practicing the outward act of circumcision and thinking that that is what has made them right with God. Their works or what they think are making them right with God. And God is reminding them, no, your heart is uncircumcised and your wickedness has, has drawn you to these idols. And they have drawn your heart away from me. Therefore, I am taking you away into exile. And Paul would make this point clear in Romans chapter 2. When we get into the book of Romans, we'll talk about this because it's a, a major theme, but Paul would say this in Romans 2, 28 and 29. For one, who, for one is a Jew who is, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul here understands that what was taking place in Abraham was a circumcision, not physically, that was to be emphasized, but a, a circumcision of the heart. That the sinful nature and the desires were being cut away. And that brings us then to Colossians chapter 2. He says, in him also you were circumcised. You were brought into a covenant relationship with God. Because there is a circumcision that you underwent that was inward. A circumcision of the heart, which was always the emphasis and always the point. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then he says in verse 12 what it is. You were buried, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, kneeling it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That believers, Paul, the point Paul is making here is that believers have, un have undergone a circumcision of Christ where the body of flesh, the debt, and the guilt associated with sin are cut away. And this happened at baptism, not in a water baptism, but by the baptism of the Spirit. When you were regenerated, when the work of the Holy Spirit began in your life, and the Holy Spirit circumcised from your heart away from you, the debt and the guilt that are associated with the fall and with sin. And in that, you were baptized into Christ. He makes this parallel that the inward circumcision of the Spirit of God and the inward baptismal work of the Spirit of God in your life are, are one and the same. That there has to be an inward work of the Holy Spirit that has circumcised you, that has baptized you. 
And when that happens, the good news of what Paul is saying here is that you were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. This is what it means, and this is what it looks like to be baptized into Christ. Full pardon, full forgiveness, all debts, all transgressions, all sins paid for. Because you have been baptized into Christ, you have been brought into God, brought the sinner, the rebellious sinner, into a covenant relationship with him, with all of its promises and all of its blessings. Full forgiveness for wherever it is that you stand and whatever it is that you're struggling with right now, the believer always rests assured of the promises of God to fully save those who are his. And you cannot be taken out of the Father's hand. He intends for all of his children to fully believe and understand and to rest in that fact. The question is, is are you resting in it? Augustine said our hearts are constantly restless until we find our rest in him. I mean, have you really, really understanding that what is happening here when he brought you into covenant relationship with him is that he has sealed the way out, so to speak. So that when you're in, you're always in, covered by the blood of Christ, if indeed you are really in. But also being in, there is then the call to respond, to live rightly. What happens is that water baptism is a joyful and public declaration that all of this is true for me. That I am now in a covenant relationship with God and I am acknowledging my covenant obligations back to him. That's the reason why Paul writes the way that he does and what Sam read for us this morning in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You were baptized into a death where you would no longer live according to the old man and according to the old sinful ways. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You were buried with him. The one who has been spiritually baptized, circumcised, then joyfully responds to that inward work by the outward work of water baptism. And it's a public declaration that I am in Christ and that I, full, I understand he has given me pardon and forgiveness, and now I am going there, I'm going forth to live in a newness of life, which is mine in Christ. And he provides. God actually provides what it is that I need to live rightly for him. I mean, it's one thing. It would be one thing. It would be enough for him to ransom me and forgive me and pardon me and call me his own and adopt me into his family. What's even more is he said, not only have I done that, but that I'm going to give you everything that you need in order for you to live rightly for me. 
water baptism is, is the explosively joyous response of one who has been brought into that relationship and then is public declaring, he is my Lord and my Savior, and I'm then, my life is then committed and devoted to living for him. I mean, that is how Paul could live the way that he lived. That is how Peter and the apostles and the disciples live the way that they lived. How do you live your life with abandonment of self for the glory of God and for the good of those who are around you? How do you really do that? I'm talking about how do you do that wherever it is that you work. I'm not just talking about like the rest of this afternoon when most of us all have the rest of the day off and we get to go home and hang out with one another and everything is relatively calm or peaceful. I'm talking about how do you engage the heart to live a life that's glorifying to God with abandoning of yourself for the good of those who are around you when you get up tomorrow morning and you go to the job that God has given you. How do you set your eyes upon eternity, upon the Christ, when you have budgets and work deadlines and production and time cards and all of these things that you need to be involved in and to do? You can't just sit in your where, whatever it is you have. I mean, so many people work from home now, so you're like sitting behind the monitor. Or if you're in your cubicle or in your desk or wherever you are, you can't just sit there with your Bible open and just reading and reading and praying the whole time. At some point, you've got to move your mouse a little bit or something. You have to actually engage with the person that's in front of you. You have to be involved. How do you, how do, you do that and say, I'm going to do this for the glory of God? You do it by understanding and meditating upon the promises that are yours in Christ and understanding that he provides what he promises to give us to do it and to do it well. You don't live by your own strength. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You were, you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are strengthened by the Holy Spirit of God to live a life by the working of the Holy Spirit in your life for the glory of God. So if you, don't, if you don't understand the working of the Holy Spirit, if you don't see your need for the working of the Spirit of God in your life, you are trying to live the Christian life on your own strength. You will fail. It is 10 out of 10 people fail when they try to live the Christian life on their own. The Spirit of God is absolutely necessary. And what the Spirit is screaming out all the time is remember your covenant union with the Father through the Son. And look to Him to help you live a life that's worthy in response to that. Like if, if anywhere on your radar is how do I live a life that's really going to glorify God, you have to depend upon the Spirit of God working in your life and be mindful of His help in your life as well. Water baptism is an announcing that I have been called by God, sealed by His Spirit for Himself, delivered from judgment, completely forgiven, but also swearing a complete allegiance and devotion to God 
living in a covenantal union with him, all because of the work of Christ applied to me. Colossians speaks of baptism in such positive and promising ways because it's based upon the work of Christ. Water baptism is the sign that I have been brought into that covenant community because I have been baptized by the Spirit of God. I'm filled by Him and seek to live a life glorifying to Him. That's what makes water baptism, the, the actual outward expression and obedience of water baptism, important. It's not just that we see it being practiced and done. Okay, John the Baptist did it. Jesus did it. He practiced it. The New Testament does it. They practiced it. I guess I should do it as well. It's, people are doing it because it, to some degree, to some level, they're grasping the reality that I have undergone an inward transformation by which I have been granted forgiveness of sins. And I, want to, I just want to publicly tell everybody that I love Jesus and that I want to live in obedience to him. And then life from there is the working of the Spirit in your life through the Word of God. Right? The, the Word of God is, is, the, is the means and the tool by which the Spirit of God speaks to us. Whether it's me opening it up in my own personal devotional time and listening to him speak whether it's hearing a sermon and hearing someone else speak the Word of God and me internalizing it and embracing it, whether it's having a com casual conversation with a friend where they are speaking the truth of God's Word into my life and helping me grow and embrace it and understand it as well. We all need the Word of God being used by the Spirit of God to help us, and that's one of the primary reasons why church exists. A place where the word of God is put on center stage. The, the sufficiency and the authority of God's word is magnified and it's proclaimed so that we might hear it and love it, embrace it, and apply it to our lives. And that includes baptism. We are, I don't know who in this room has been baptized or not. We are having a baptism on November 27th. And so one way, if you're thinking about, okay, what do I do? How do I apply this to my life? Um, one of the ways would be to be baptized. If you are uh, a professing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have not been baptized in a re real simple practical way to apply this is to be baptized. And we are having baptism on November 27th. And so you can talk to me or Craig or Dan about that, and we can um, talk about the details of that. One of the things I think that's important to consider is, are we living a life that reflects that I've been baptized into Christ and that I have that covenantal union with him? Another way is to are you ask yourself the question, are you resting and rejoicing in that covenant union with him? All of the promises that are applied to the believer in Scripture God intends for us to take hold of and to grasp and apply and live, are you doing so? Resting in the work of Christ. 
We're going to partake of communion together. You guys know that we do this every week. This is an opportunity for us to respond and worship. Communion is a worship time, and we talked about communion last week a little bit. We'll talk about it again next week as it being the other sacrament. We talked about baptism today. But this is an opportunity for us to respond and worship. It's for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're here and you're visiting today and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved, then we invite for you to partake of the table. But if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and know him by faith and by faith alone, consider what it is that we've talked about and how there is salvation found in nobody but him. You cannot work your way. You cannot get into that union, that covenant union with God, by any other means than by faith in Christ. There is no other way. So if you're trying, stop. Look to Christ and look to him alone. He alone pardons. He alone provides forgiveness. And because of that, this is the time of worship. This is the time of confession. This is the time of examination both of which we talked about at great length last week, but this is also a time of assurance. I think of the ways that I have not lived faithfully to how God calls me to live this past week, probably like this past 24 hours. And I confess those things to the Lord, and I'm, I'm reminded of the assurance that he gives to me as his child because it's based upon the work of Christ, his goodness, not mine. So the elements are on the back, in the back tables. You can get those and return back to your seat. You'll have some time for prayer and meditation, a few moments, and then we will partake of communion together here shortly.